Sometimes science takes you on the most unexpected swashbuckling of adventures. I started on Kangaroo Island and then travelled in the Flinders Ranges. Eight-day trip around Tasmania, Cape York. Ten days driving across Arnhem Land, Pilbara, Southwest WA. We did a road trip, Stradbroke Island, Morton Island, Fraser Island, near Mackay. Lots of travel. I, I, I did uh, have to spend some time with my family, but there was a lot of like, hi, hi, and out the door. I'm off collecting daisies. Yeah, that's right. Botanist Tim Collins was on a mission to find paper daisies across Australia, sample their DNA and sequence their genomes, because that's how botanists roll. They want to help us understand what plants are out there. But he could never have known that his hunt would catapult him into the heart of an historical saga, a complicated romance and an everlasting mystery. Hey, it's Natasha Mitchell with Science Friction, joining you from Wurundjeri country. Over the next two episodes, a story that will take you across the seas and back in time two centuries, from Australia to post-revolutionary France, into a French empress's bizarre garden where you would have found an emu and a kangaroo roaming. She's creating a little sanctuary, a little place of harmony, I think, to escape to, so she doesn't want to be involved in all these wars. And then on to a remote island in the South Atlantic Ocean to find a battle-worn Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte in exile. It's a very sad story, and I must admit, brought up with a good British education, I I wasn't always very sympathetic to Napoleon, but there's no one more pro-Napoleon now after I've written this book. In fact, I'm looking for a little bust of Napoleon to put on my desk in my study, but that's another story. (laughs) but I'm starting closer to home in central Victoria with my dog and a friend, Tiff, out on a bushwalk last weekend. Look! We've come across an early season flowering Xerocrys and Bracteatum. <laughs> I've practised that. The golden everlasting daisy, the paper daisy. It's pretty early in the season, but after big rains, they're springing up and open. Do you remember these from your childhood? Yeah, I just remember that they, I thought they really were paper because they're so dry and crispy. They don't seem real. And if you touch them, what do they sound like? And it's got lovely green springy stems reaching up to the sky and at the end of them are these gorgeous paper daisies, bright yellow like a firework display with lovely burnished tinges of orange. But of course, uh, the nurseries have all sorts of different colours. Magentas and pinks and, yeah, monstrous. Monstrous and gorgeous. Yeah, so monstrous. I mean, one of the uh, early uh, horticulturalists gave them the species name Monstruosum, you know, which sort of makes them sound like a bit like Frankenstein's monster in a way. And, and in effect, they really are. You know, they're these hybrid uh, beasts that have been created by man. Gaudy but beautiful. Gaudy but beautiful, that's right. And nurseries all over the world love the gaudy, monstrous hybrid varieties of paper daisies. It used to be thought that there was only one species of golden everlasting daisy in the wild in Australia, but Tim has recently discovered 12 new species, a really significant finding, and here's why. 
we're now able to recognise species in the field and understand where they occur and then we can understand what threats they might face and then better manage and, and protect these unique pieces of Australia's uh, natural heritage. Australia's flora is amongst the most unique and diverse in the world, so it's really confronting to discover that more than two-thirds of our threatened species are plants. And we just don't know what we're losing unless we know what's there in the first place. But paper daisies... It seems they like to travel, and this is where our saga begins, with Tim, at the time a PhD student. I'm at university, I'm a student, I'm in the tea room. And Tim gets chatting to some volunteers. One of the volunteers mentions that his sister had recently been uh, travelling to St Helena, which is in the South Atlantic, just 10 degrees from the equator, off the coast of uh, Africa, and that she'd been looking at paper daisies and then he mentioned that had been planted by Napoleon. And that really just grabbed me. I was fixated on this subject at this point. I heard Paper Daisy, I heard Napoleon, and this place that I'd never heard of called St Helena. Tim's mind starts whirring. How did Paper Daisies come to call a tiny remote island somewhere out in the middle of the South Atlantic home? And were they from Australia originally? Or were they those monstrous colourful hybrids sold in nurseries all over the world? And what did Napoleon Bonaparte, the Emperor of France, have to do with them anyway? Tim just had to find out. At first glance, this story will seem obvious. It's not. It's full of puzzles. Now, the first ever written description of the Australian paper daisy does, in fact, occur in France in 1803. For millennia before that, Aboriginal people would have been intimately acquainted with the daisy's blooms here, long before any whitefella scientist declared the flowers worthy of attention. But it was in 1803 that the botanist Etienne Pierre Vontenard mentioned the daisy in a book about a really unusual garden near Paris, with this vast catalogue of weird and wonderful plants and animals never before seen in Europe. And the garden's owner had an ambitious vision. She wanted to grow these plants and animals from all over the world. Just a, a harmony of all these different places and also that sort of fascination of what are these plants of the new world <laughs> going to look like when you send away to a sea captain and ask for seeds and, and you don't know what they're going to turn out like. I mean, it must have been a really fascinating time to be around. <laughs> Empress Josephine, Napoleon's wife, whose garden it was, was a fascinating woman too, as Dr Stephanie Parkin discovered when she set about researching her second novel, Josephine's Garden. Stephanie has a pretty fascinating life herself. She quit her career as an ecologist specialising in freshwater crayfish to write successful historical fiction. It, and it is liberating. It is much more freeing to just invent some of the things in between the facts. So you still have that kind of sense of discovery of finding those facts, but you're finding them for a reason of illuminating the character or telling us something else about the times. You know, that's the real fun and joy of being a novelist, I think. But sometimes reality is stranger than fiction, and Steph became completely enthralled by Empress Josephine's story. 
Born on the French Caribbean island of Martinique, as a teenager sent to marry a man she didn't know, who despised her and threw her in a convent at age 18, by which time she'd already had two children. Then she's captured during the French Revolution, imprisoned, almost guillotined, but released, and eventually she meets and marries Napoleon, a French general, six years her junior, who goes on to become the emperor of the new French Republic, and Josephine, its empress. And that relationship too, I think, with Napoleon, because it it was a weird love story. It was really a dependency situation. And as he became more and more despotic as well, that changed. And I found that a really fascinating thing, that she was trying to germinate these plants at the same time as not being able to give Napoleon an heir. And that was so important for her to keep what she wanted, which was that security of her own home. Part of the whole garden metaphor too is I wanted to, you know, she wants to put down these roots somewhere after her uh, really tumultuous early years of being sent away from home and put in a convent and never having any security herself. So that, that I think is an important metaphor with the garden as well. At the same time as looking at a woman trying to build something creative and beautiful and scientific as well, um, she did have that interest in cataloguing all of these plants that were being collected around the world at that time. Some scientists looked sideways at this enterprising empress. She was competition in their pursuit to collect and claim and name plants from distant worlds. But others did collaborate with her, and in ATM Pierre Vontenard's book on her garden at Chateau de Malmaison, you'll find the star of our story. Paper daisy, with its green stems and, and striking golden flower heads, there it is, just like the one I saw swaying in a warm breeze up in central Victoria last week, rendered as this gorgeous illustration by the renowned painter and botanist Pierre-Joseph Redoute. And in elaborate cursive print underneath, the words, Xeranthemum bracteatum. And he took a piece of the plant growing in the Empress Josephine's garden and he pressed it and that plant specimen can still be seen in the herbarium in Geneva, in Switzerland. That is where the taxonomic journey describing golden everlasting paper daisies began, was in that book back in 1803 in Paris. And that specimen in Geneva has been preserved ever since as the reference specimen for the species. But to understand where that specimen came from in the first place and how the seeds got to Josephine, Tim Collins needed to get his hands on some DNA. There certainly would be no chance for me to go to that specimen, you know, hundreds of years old, and take a piece off and destructively sample it to extract DNA. They just wouldn't let me do that. But he wasn't about to give up. Now, it turns out the paper daisy wasn't the only Antipodean curiosity in the Empress Josephine's garden, which she'd started creating back in 1799, 15 years before her death. The plants of New Holland, what Europeans called the great southern land we know as Australia, were everywhere in her garden. Big sweeping lawns and walkways through weeping willows, you know, growing the Australian wattles, the mimosas as they called them, and then this amazing view across the lake where she had 
swans, black swans from Australia. She had emu, she had wallabies, and they were all freely grazing on these slopes. The men moved forward to release the walls of the crate. This one's the emu, the man said, avoiding the snapping beak. As the walls fell open, the emu staggered to its feet and shook its feathers. Josephine gasped. The creature wobbled on long legs, its body the shape of a bagpipe, but huge and bloated and covered in shaggy feathers. She had the feeling of seeing something impossible, something from the dawn of time. Why would God create such a creature? It bent and plucked at the grass, pulling up the green blades. Will you be happy here, she wondered? Will I be able to keep you alive? And even an orangutan lived in the house with her there. So it was a menagerie, a wondrous place to walk. Some of her ladies-in-waitings would complain that she spoiled these great walks by boring them with all the Latin names of all the plant species that they went by. Ah, she's a nerd after my own heart, a botanical nerd <laughs> after my own heart. She amassed well over 100 species from Australia, according to documentation. Grevilleas, wattles, banksias, tea trees, eucalypts, casuarinas. I think the first Tasmanian bluegums in Europe were grown in her garden. How would have all these plants seemed to Europeans who had never seen these plants before from a distant land? I know. It must have just been an absolute wonder to to hold these seeds in your hand, these tiny seeds, and not know whether you were going to get an enormous tree or or a spiky, weird-looking plant. I think the form of these plants would have been an absolute curiosity. That's what they were interested in, the unusualness of them. The sort of spidery lobes of gorgeous grevilleas and the seed cases, the old Banksia men of Banksia trees. It just must have been like a a sort of magical mystery tour of the botanical kind. absolute Jack and the Beanstalk sort of thing. (laughs) You don't know what you're going to get. It was the age of discovery where gentlemen, naturalists were travelling the world and, and discovering things and exploding myths about biodiversity on Earth. Suddenly they were revealing all this extra biodiversity. People were just so excited by these discoveries and trying to outdo each other with, well, you've got a pineapple on your table. Look, here's a golden everlasting paper daisy, um, revelation after revelation. And it captured the Empress's imagination. And also she bought them from Lee and Kennedy in England, which were sort of nurseries that were selling plants that had come out of those early English explorations. So the French had sent similar explorations down to Australia, but they hadn't ended very well. So La Perouse expedition did not return. Jean-Francois La Perouse and his crew were never found. They disappeared at sea. Don Trocasto was sent out to find them, but their specimens were captured by the British before they got back to France. And then finally, Napoleon orders his own expedition of Baudin. But again, that takes quite a while before the plants come back. And in a twist, the gardener on board the Don Trocasto voyage to Australia, Felix Delahaye, went on to become Josephine's head gardener at Malmaison. But some have wondered whether the paper daisies in her garden may have come from Nicholas Bodin's voyage. 
He, he travelled around the south coast of WA, for example, and that's paper daisy heaven. That's right. He, he collected in, in Sydney as well. So, and initially we were thinking, wow, maybe, maybe that was where the Empress Josephine got her plants. But when we looked at his ships returning from Australia with the specimens and the date of publication of Vontanar's book, the two didn't match up. So Baudin's material just arrived a little bit too late to have been the, uh, the source of uh, the plants that Vontanar described. Josephine's very uh, resourceful and she's writing to everyone she can and she's she charms people. She's a a very personable person and they want to help her. And Napoleon has become first consul of France and then shortly after that he's, he crowns himself emperor. So she's quite powerful at this point. She did spend a lot of money buying rare plants from around the world as well as being involved in pushing for these expeditions to go ahead. It's incredible to think that she was doing these deals for seeds and plants from far-flung countries on the, yeah. back, on the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. You know, her husband, yes. Napoleon, was waging war all through this time and, yes. and her building of this garden kind of parallels the rise and fall of Napoleon. She's creating a little sanctuary, a little place of harmony, I think, to escape to. So she doesn't want to be involved in all these wars. But, yes, yeah, so her competitiveness is in the garden, whereas Napoleon's out, you know, trying to make an empire and conquer all of these different lands. So she's trying to get some plants through the blockade. They're not supposed to be trading between England and France. And then shortly after that, there was a year of peace, and then that opened the floodgates, and lots of English people came across and visited her garden because she was quite a celebrity in England as well, actually, at that time. In your novel, Josephine's Garden, Stephanie, you, you have her very much competing and pissing off famous botanists of the time for for precious seeds and plants collected on the voyages to New Holland. So so tell us about that competition and who she was competing with. Yes, so there was an institute called the Jardin de Plantes and they were the official scientists of the day. They called them savants, so they were the naturalists and the botanists. It was especially with the Baudin exploration, the seeds and the plants and animals that came from that voyage were supposed to be shared between them, Malmaison and the official Jardin de Plantes. So there is quite a lot of angst between the two of them when those specimens come back. And of course, the official scientists don't want to share them with Josephine. She saw Thorne's letter at her feet and kicked it away. The words still burned. We regret that duplicate specimens are not available for domestic purposes. Domestic purposes, she fumed. If a man had my ambitions to propagate the rare and wondrous plants of the world, would they call his endeavours pleasant diversions, an idle hobby, something to pursue in my leisure hours? They are afraid of me, she thought suddenly, and it gave her a small jolt of pleasure. Afraid I will be better at growing their exotic plants than they are. I shall have those seeds, and I shall be the first to grow them in European soil. You mark my words. There, she had declared it. She had declared her ambition. It felt dangerous to be so bold, to be audacious enough to want some recognition for herself. 
You have the famous French botanist Jacques Labilardière really quite angry at Empress Josephine for essentially taking plants that, well, he wants credit for naming, but also, and, and describing and cultivating, but also he's a great believer that this all belongs in the public domain, yes, not, not in right. some empress's fanciful garden. Yes. Thank you very much. Both um, Napoleon and Josephine are commoners that have risen up. So he doesn't like the fact that they are now purporting to be royalty when what they had hoped for with the revolution was a much more merit-based kind of democracy. And he doesn't see that happening. And, you know, if she takes all these things into her private world, they may be lost to the French and to the world. My heart's on Josephine's side that she should be allowed to grow these plants. (laughs) (laughs) That's the novelist's prerogative, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) How do you think Josephine, Empress Josephine, is placed in the history of botanical science and particularly in the description, the, the early description of these Australian plants. Yeah, I mean, she's regarded as doing this in her leisure hours and, you know, as a spendthrift who spent a lot of money on lots of stuff, which she did, but <laughs> but that doesn't mean she didn't have intelligence as well and wasn't interested in growing these plants for their own value and for scientific sort of knowledge and interest. She was definitely an enabler of that science to happen. And, yeah, I don't think there is much recognition of that, yeah. She did introduce the world to many Australian plants. She was a driving force in in some key way. Yeah, that's right. She was like that about a lot of things in terms of fashions and, and so forth. So people followed what she was interested in. Her garden was closely documented by a famous French botanist and illustrations by Pierre-Joseph Redoute. And and so there was a sort of sense of documentation, scientific documentation. She seemed to understand the value of that. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe she wanted to show also that she was a person of importance in that regard, that she had the capability to do that and make this happen and get this garden growing and to have the science happening and so yeah it, it was an ambition of hers I would say and also there's there's a painting of her that she commissions near the end of of her time with Napoleon and you know she is clearly in her the garden is the backdrop her hand is resting on her notebook which is the flora of Malmaison and you know it's a very active post she's dressed with you know flowers on her clothes I think she is speaking to us through the years and sort of saying, look, I am, I was interested in all of this, this garden and this work. Um, I'm not just, it wasn't just a frivolous, I'm interested in flowers, that's all. You know, it is the science behind it as well. But we still don't know how that paper daisy landed in Josephine's garden all the way from the wilds of Australia, 15,000 kilometres away. Every every little, uh, you know, someone had mentioned a paper daisy and I'd be onto it like a bloodhound. I'd be, oh, La Perouse might have collected it. So we went looking at La Perouse's stuff. We looked at Baudin, we looked at Don Castro, and each of them just kept coming up like, no, it just seems unlikely. And so the most likely source would be 
the plantsman on Doncastro's expedition that came back and worked for Josephine, was in touch with nurseries in Europe and they said, hey, check out this golden everlasting, the Empress is going to love it. So, was it her plants man, her head gardener, Felix Delahaye, helping to collect thousands of plant specimens on the Dontracasto voyage from 1791? The plot thickens. Next episode, Emperor Napoleon divorces Josephine because she can't give him an heir. Nice move, dude. Then he remarries, he loses the Battle of Waterloo and he's exiled for the last six years of his life to this tiny island in the South Atlantic. St Helena, you know, is, is, is wonderful for the military historian. It's full of old forts and old cannons and what have you. But it's also full of the most remarkable botany and, and, and plants. It, the island is a botanic gardens in its own right. It is an arboretum, a collection of trees in its own right. Because the climate is so wonderful and because of the soil in the centre and the ridge of the island uh, is, is so productive, and they grow very fine potatoes there, being an Irishman, I, I appreciate St Helena potatoes. <laughs> and that's where we pick up the golden everlasting daisy mystery next episode. You can follow Follow the Science Friction podcast on the ABC Listen app or all podcast platforms and tell your friends about us. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is produced by me and Lisa Needham. And thanks to sound engineer Angie Grant. I'll catch you later. Bye.